0: this episode of Dig Me Out.
1: What the hell are they talking about?
0: None of those bands had the intensity that this band displays on most of its songs.
1: Queen is maybe the most British band ever.
0: I made it through the first nine songs before I didn't make a checkpoint. I
1: thought that was good, but it just sort of didn't grab me.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi. Join me once again, uh, my co-host and friend, Jay Ziak. Jay, how are you this evening? I'm pretty good. You're pretty good? Not great? <laughs> Just good? Well, What's wrong, Jay?
1: Nothing. I was going to say this, it was almost okay. the first one we ever recorded with, with daylight still coming through the window, but that quickly ended.
0: Yeah, that went away fast. It was late a half hour ago, and now it's pitch black. Not sure what happened. Some sort of rotation of the earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's jump into this review. We are reviewing... Is this our first UK band? We've reviewed an Australian band. Um, plenty of American bands.
1: It may be.
0: This I'm, might be our first British band.
1: I'm scratching the old noggin here. I'm not coming up with another one.
0: Yeah. So this is um, Marion, is the name of the band, and we're reviewing their first album. Uh, called This World and Body. I'm going to give a little bit of the uh, the history here. Well, actually, a little bit's actually deceiving because they actually have quite a bit of history for a band that pretty much nobody's ever heard of in the United States. Uh, the band was formed in uh, Cheshire, England in 93. Cheshire. And broke up in... Cheshire. Uh, broke up in 2000 and then reformed again in 2006 and then went on hi- hiatus again in 2008. Formed by singer and harmonica player jamie harding uh named after his grandmother originally a five-piece although they have fluctuated between being a four-piece and a five-piece recorded a demo in 93 that was discovered by joe moss famed uh manager of the smiths he got them signed to rough trade where they released a bunch of singles before their first album uh they did uh singles in 94 and then opened, and this was a band without an album. They opened for Radiohead and Morrissey on tours in '95, so you could tell that this band was being groomed to be something
1: hmm, like a show dog.
0: They were on the They were on the cover of Melody Maker magazine in April of '95, and their album didn't come out until February of '96. So this was a this was a proverbial buzz band in the UK. This, Although the UK press loves to build up bands,
1: yeah, they, they were enemy darlings.
0: They released This World and Body in 96. It went top 10 in the UK, didn't make a dent in the United States. They toured Europe, Japan, and the US. They took off most of 97 to record their follow-up with Johnny Marr of the Smiths, who actually played a little guitar on the album. That album called The Program came out in September of 98. Uh, It didn't chart, although, and this is how I discovered the band, they got played on MTV 120 minutes once, and it was for a single called Makeo, uh or Mikiao or I don't even know how to say it. It's, it's some sort of Japanese word. M I Carmel,
1: Carmel Macchiato Why?
0: Yeah, Carmel Macchiato Hideaway. Um, <laughs> I saw the video and I was like, "Wow, that's a really cool band!" And then I never could find anything because they basically never got their albums never got released in the United States. Side note here: I found their first singles at Sour Records in Westerville which used to be a really great record store in Westerville, Ohio. And that's how I started collecting their music. Uh, the band recorded a little bit between '99 and 2005. Guitarist Phil Cunningham played with a bunch of bands and then joined New Order for the album Waiting for the Sirens Call, which had the single Crafty on it. And then he joined New Order bassist um, Peter Hook in his side project band Bad Lieutenant. Harding, the lead singer, and Cunningham, the guitar player, reformed the band after the breakup with new members. They played a few shows, but then Jamie Harding had open heart surgery and the band went on on a hiatus. They played seven shows between 06 and 08, and then Harding got pneumonia. So they've had some troubles. There were also some rumors of some drug issues with Harding throughout the 90s.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, you don't get... uh... Have, have to have open heart surgery and getting yeah. pneumonia. I mean, the guy's probably a couple years older than us, right? Yeah. 40? He was in
0: his twenties when, when the band formed. So, um, in April eight, oh eight, they released a four song live EP of new material. And then in June, they released another two song single. And then in 2009, Jamie Harding posted on the BAMS website that he was healthy and they were recording new material, but nothing has post, nothing has been posted in the last two years, I want to point out, if, if you're interested after you hear this podcast, there's two good websites to check out. One's called the marionarchives.co.uk, and the other one is marionuk.co.uk, and they'll be in the notes for the show. I found a lot of demo MP3s, live MP3s, tons of information about the band. This is a, a weird band for me because I basically discovered their singles before the albums, and I discovered the single because of the video, and I became obsessive about this band, which I, not a lot of bands I become obsessive about. Mostly I just get the albums and I like them and whatnot. But once I had those first couple singles, I was like, well, I gotta find all the singles. So I literally spent years tracking down every single that they released, <laughs> trying to get every B-side. Because they only put out two albums, but they put out two albums worth of B-sides. So they basically put out four albums worth of material, and I was determined to find all that. Uh, music, and I pretty much did. I think there's maybe one song I haven't dug out, it was probably like a live track for a Japanese, you know, single that was released as a seven-inch or something like that. But this was a band that I was championing, championing way back in the '90s that nobody listened to, and um, I think I've annoyed even you with, "Hey, you should listen to this CD. You should listen to this band," long before we started doing this podcast. <laughs> no, so. <laughs>
1: I remember I remember the band and I, I mean I like I think I had this album, at least I knew some of the songs but you know it was uh, they were one of many bands kind of doing this thing at the time so I thought that it was good, but it just sort of didn't grab me. Um,
0: to, yeah I wanna, so I want to get fans. your your kind of now revisiting that from the years ago when I when I hoisted it upon you um, what your opinion is now taking a little more critical ear the album.
1: Uh, well, I think what's interesting is that, you know, like you said, we are... I think we we have to check our... Uh, double-check our records here, but I believe this is our first English or UK album that we've done or banned uh, since doing this podcast. And that was uh, one of the big things that I sort of gravitated to right away when I was listening to this again. And it took me back to um, sort of the late 90s, mid-90s when, you know... In America, you had all the bands that were basically doing, you know, the Pearl Jam Yarling thing, the Allison Chains moaning thing, the um, super macho kind of deep vocals and like drop D riffs. And the late '90s in America was pretty much a lot of bands doing that. And then you had some bands doing like more pop stuff, like the Spin Doctors or whatever the hell that was. But
2: for the more most part, the, stuff.
1: the rock stuff was like some derivative of what happened in the early '90s you know from all the seattle right. bands, but in the uk you had all these bands kind of coming out or had been around and sort of uh became became known they were one of them where vocally they didn't sound like any of those bands this guy i mean he's kind of got fairly high voice you know he's got range he's not like high pitch but compared to those other bands fairly high definitely a morrissey sort of influence in there um sort of slightly effeminate sounding at times <laughs> and then from musically uh you know they got a hard edge to them in some ways you know jack guitars slightly bumpastic but they're really probably more drawing from either 80s alternative like new romantic style stuff or 70s 60s glam glitter rock more than anything else um so it was kind of interesting you know i'm thinking of bands like suede you know was kind of coming out at the same time i think placebo was kind of coming around that time too
0: yeah early two, placebo yeah
1: two bands that sort of I, uh, you know remind me of what they're doing i think that they going back i was struck with uh and listen to it now is not only struck by the how english it was but also uh <laughs> you know i had for for i had a little, like a really good energy to it especially the first couple songs and there was a couple others um deeper in the album they're really up-tempo and just got really good um i'm always a sucker for the like sort of the ascending octave riff and they always have you know one of those guitars on some of the heavier stuff and the faster stuff one of those guitars always doing that you know if you think about the those bands i mentioned before suede and placebo you know a lot of their early stuff was mid-tempo sort of it didn't have the same kind of raw energy to it that this does um, which I really, really liked. You know, I think it hold, holds up pretty good. Uh, lyrically, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, lyrics for me are, are one of three things. Either I pay attention to it because they're really good, like 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 really, really well done, or I pay attention to them because they're really bad, or I don't pay attention to them at all because they're kind of like, eh, you know, they're just part of the overall mix, and they're not one or the other. Most of the bands I really love fall in the middle. They're they're just sort of like lyrically take it or leave it, you know. Not always great. Nothing really embarrassing. For the most part I would say they're in the middle. Um, there is one song though that I wanted to bring up and get your point of view on. And that would be uh, Is it Toys for Boys?
0: Rack 8, yeah. Toys okay. for Boys. I knew you were going to bring that one up.
1: Maybe I'm just hypersensitive to that with my my, my past with uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, but what the hell are they talking about? And what toys exactly are they referencing? I've listened to that song like five times now in the last couple of days trying to figure out what what possibly metaphor they're making or what reference they're trying to make. But that's, that's one of the lyrics that stood out to me is like, Sort of like, and it's a good song, you know, I'm sort of rocking out, and and he keeps talking about these toys and the boys, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, what is he saying? (laughs) <laughs> Do you know what he's saying? What he's talking about? Is it drugs? Um
0: I don't know if it's drugs per se. I think a lot of his lyrics are built on the melody and they're not the 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 word choice is not necessarily important. I mean you have a song called Wait, you have a song called Sleep, and you have a song called Time. That's not real deep, like those are not big issues. Those yeah, but- are not really Toys dense. for
1: boys is very specific. It's not just called toys, and it's not just called boys.
0: Right. Uh,
1: <laughs> it just—it had me wondering.
0: I, I, I can't imagine what thoughts were going through your head that—that <laughs> that might mean. I think drugs is probably the best one we're gonna get. We're gonna okay. Um,
1: Let's go with that. That's that's cool.
0: I did want to backtrack though. You mentioned about sort of the tempo of this band. I think that's. One of the things that makes them really unique for both the era and where they're coming from Mm -hmm. is that if you talk about the Britpop bands, which would be like Blur, Oasis, Pulp, Supergrass, um, Suede. I don't even know if Suede is really in that. They were were kind of glammy and not necessarily pop. And then you talk about what would be termed the Madchester bands, which would be the Happy Mondays, um, Primal Scream, um, Stone Roses. None of those bands had the intensity that this band displays on most of its songs. I think when you hit you hit it on the head with like set more of a '70s and um, '80s alternative sound when it comes to the to the tempos. Because this is this is a band that plays almost half the album at like a breakneck speed. When you get to um, the third track, let's all go together. It's a nice break because those first two songs are—they just fly by—and I think also has to do with the fact that most of the songs on here are kind of short. I mean, the longest song I think is about four minutes and fifty seconds, and everything else is like four minutes and under.
1: Yeah, they're all around three minutes.
0: So I mean, these are tightly constructed songs. You're you're in usually it's like a guitar riff or a um, a chord progression once or twice, and then you were into the verse. Pretty standard in terms of like verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Uh, Not a lot of soloing. There's a couple big bridges and stuff like that, but there's not much in terms of fat on most of these songs. And I don't think that any other band that I can think of from that era and from that time were really like... I, I would say this isn't necessarily a good musical comparison, but the Manic Street Preachers were one of the few bands that were playing at this sort of tempo because I think a lot of the Madchester and the Britpot stuff was based around grooves. Mm-hmm. And this is not a groovy record. No, not at
1: all. It does so, slow down at times. Like, uh, track three is like a 6-8 thing. And then there's uh, track ten, which is probably the heavy, he- most heavily influenced Morrissey sounding song on yeah.
2: here.
1: Which is actually cool because it's got a harmonica solo in it. So it's, it, as you went through the intro, you touched on a lot of the stuff that really stood out to me anyway with without even knowing it. So one of the things was that I think the harmonica appears on this album maybe twice. It's, it's on the second song, too. It's really, the places they put it are really tastefully done. And it's kind of a nice little surprise. which is interesting because if you think somebody would be identified in a band as a singer and a harmonica player, you'd go ahead and assume that you'd have a harmonica on every damn song. And, You're
2: thinking of John Popper. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but luckily, you know, he identifies himself as a harmonica player, but you know, it's used very sparingly when it's used. Um, I think it's to a really good effect. So, you know, it, there are some moments on here, I think where it slows down and actually, those are probably the times when they are most pop-friendly. They're not my favorite songs, but they are definitely the songs I can hear be most commercially successful. Um, but I, I like the up-tempo stuff, personally.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm on the same page with you there. Although, I, I mean, you know, I, I was checking off the songs as I was listening back, and I was like, yep, I like this one, yep, I like this one, yep. I made it through the first nine songs before I didn't make a check mark. Yeah. you know Every one of those songs has something interesting going on, especially the guitarist Phil Cunningham. He's doing a lot of interesting runs yeah. and changing parts from first verse to the second verse. He's not a showy guitar player. He's not doing a lot of solos and stuff like that. He's just coming up with interesting riffs and leads that are really do a, um, a service to countering um, the vocals, which can get a little samey at times. Verse to verse with, uh, Jamie Harding singing. Um, yeah, his
1: inflection and sort of affectation on his voice gets a little. By the time the album's over, you're a little filled filled up on that. But uh, you're right; it's the dynamic dynamics of the the guitar playing, but also the contrast between him doing that style of vocal and this really jagged, aggressive guitar that I think really works for me and and why some other bands that don't have that maybe have that style of vocal but don't have that kind of nasty razor blade you know guitar underneath it it, it doesn't work as well for me I, I i really enjoy the contrast of that so you know i think i, I think like you, you know you mentioned the pre ministry preachers that's one of the bands that while vocally they're Different, but you're right. I mean, it sort of still has when they're aggressive, it sort of has the same kind of feel to me. Also, the later placebo stuff, which mm-hmm. when when they got, you know, the second or third album, they sort of found themselves a little bit and got out of, got more up tempo and a little less um, dramatic. And they started to sound like what this band sounds like. It also made me wonder I heard a lot of bands in here, I heard the jam in here from time to time, like uh, track uh, nine. Thank <laughs> There's something about that musically that reminded me a lot of the Jam, um, but I also heard, and I, and I wonder, you know, Muse gets, at least especially early on in their career, got kind of bashed a lot for being Radiohead ripoffs. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't. Now that I listen to them, particularly anything after the first album, I honestly don't hear that. And I, no, almost I don't he- either. I almost hear that they maybe were. At least early on, more influenced by a band like this and bands like them in, in England, especially
0: from the from the energy standpoint. Yeah. I mean, you listen to the, the first Muse album, yeah, you can hear the 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 Radiohead, the Bends influence in that. But you hit that second Muse album; they're off on their own thing. Right. The only the only connection is the vocals, is the you know.
1: And that early Radiohead stuff had, had a sort of, had a, a strumminess to it. You know, those first couple albums with the mm-hmm. open chords and stuff. And Muse has never done anything like that. And that's what kind of reminds me of of this band. The up-tempo stuff, the sort of, the drama that's in the music. It almost makes me think, you know, if, if, um, if you could imagine the singer for Marion having the range that the guy from Muse has he would kind of sound the same. He just doesn't have the range that the guy from Muse has, so he kind of That's a real good point. He kind of, you know, That's does you know, he he does his little sort of he's found out, he figured out how to, you know, do his his voice, but he's sort of limited. He can't go very far with it. And if I think if he could, he would end up sounding like the guy like Muse.
0: So And I, and I I will say I don't I don't want to dip into the second album too much, but that album is way more developed musically than this album this album has a musical sameness from song to song guitar tone drums bass kind of sounds like it was all hatched in the same you know like jamming and practice sessions and stuff like that the second record is a lot different i'm, I'm hoping we're going to get to it eventually because it's a really interesting record because it's a lot more not experimental but they try some different textures and sounds mm-hmm. that uh, this record doesn't approach and it's it's a natural progression i think for a band where you're you know you start to explore the studio a little bit after you've after you've made your first record
1: well you, so. can, you can hear it come through a time you know on uh, a few songs on this album i think in terms of their uh, from a uh, percussion standpoint there's a couple of songs where they mix in like i think it might be woodblock or cowbell or something but there's like a percussion bed just subtly in there um one song has piano in it there's a couple mm-hmm. tunes where they mix guitar uh, acoustic guitar in so I can kind of see I haven't I don't know how much of this 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 the uh, second album I've heard but um, I could definitely hear that they're starting to you know play with those sorts of textures and layering and and uh, so it wouldn't be a shock to
2: me when your body lies next to me i wonder if you're better than me don't think so, I would know so, your job seems better than mine, cause you're at home most of the time, home is best for you, loneliness cripples you, on my journey through the metal and trees. Reflect on the things that we've seen. Our lives now taste fun. We'll mend them somehow.
0: Don't scared. So to you, you usually ask when we get to the end of the podcast, um, why wasn't this album bigger? Why didn't it catch on?
1: Well, um, none, none of what, these bands in, in the US
0: did anything, right? I mean, you mean in the UK?
1: No, I mean in the US. So I oh I you,
0: mean, you mean in the U.S.
1: I'm talking about in the U.S. So none of these British bands yeah
0: very few of them broke through. Oasis kind of did and Blur did and that was about it.
1: Yeah, and they
0: Supergrass had a, like I guess you would say some minor success and, and Catherine Wheel had some minor success but nothing to the extent of which Oasis and Blur um, did and, and this band did nothing. So um,
1: I, I think the, they were just, they were way too. Uh, English for American taste you know what I mean I think there's certain bands that it just doesn't translate here um, people don't get get it so at that time you know people were kind of looking for angry you know frat rock I guess I don't know where we were going maybe that or the Dave Matthews thing was starting to break um, you know those were two directions in America and this band does not fit this band and a lot of bands that that were uh, big in the UK or having some success there did not fit in at all with what was going on in America. And uh, no,
0: definitely not. This was released in in the beginning of '96, and you know, grunge and Nirvana and Pearl Jam. That was not that it was done, but it didn't. It was waning. I mean, you had you were dealing with like bands like. Sponge and Our Lady, Peace and Candlebox, and mm-hmm. even Candlebox at this point was under their second album, which didn't do anything. And you were starting to see the, you know, the second and third generation. This is when like Bush was big, so mm-hmm. you had to be a you had to be a Nirvana imitator if you're going to be a British band, or you had to be Oasis and Radiohead and 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 Blur. Well,
1: which... even even Blur's biggest hit was basically them. Pretending to be a, a grunge band, right? Know? Yeah, I mean, song two This exactly. is them kind of making fun or playing around with the idea of being a heavy metal, or not heavy metal, but a hard, you know, rock grunge band. Mm-hmm. So they they had to ape that style to even get a hit here.
0: That's true. So that's a good point.
1: And you know, Oasis was sort of an anomaly. They they did you know they they had the big guitar thing going on, but they were so like those songs were just so like simple and universal that, I mean, I realize that they have a heavy British aspect about them, but, you know, of all the bands, they, they were the least, I guess, quirky or unusual or uniquely English. You think about like, you know, say Queen is maybe the most British band ever. <laughs> that sets the bar for for being for what an English band means, you know, they were far, far, far away from that. So whereas I yeah. think Marion was probably if, if, if Queen's a 10, Marion's probably a six or seven. Right. <laughs> that scale means any sense, but
0: that's me. I don't know if it made any sense, <laughs> but I, 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 know where, I know where you're going with it. All right. Let's wrap this one up. Want everybody to go visit the website, digmeoutpodcast.com. Make sure to click through our links to Amazon And we have links for e-music. You can buy the stuff that we're talking about. Hopefully it's on there. And audible.com where you can purchase books about music and listen to them. I highly recommend the 33 and a Third series which uh, re-examines albums including such bands as the Afghan Whigs and their album Gentleman. There's a suggested listening. And also to check out um, we have a link to some books that are uh, relevant to this era. I just finished reading uh, melkit by Jim regatis about the 90s alternative scene. And there's a lot of interesting info in there, and we have a link from our website. Click that on, decide if that's a book you want to read. I, I would suggest reading it because there's a lot of stuff that I learned about in that book about 90s bands that I had no idea about. Especially like R.E.M. and Steve Albini and just little tidbits, and you're like, oh, okay, now that makes sense why that happened, or those people didn't like each other. Or... Hmm. So, um, milk it, Jim Goddess, I suggest that one. And visit the website. And anything else, Jay? Anything else I should pimp while I'm running out of time?
1: I think you've pimped everything just quite well.
0: Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. I've, I've tried to be an effective <laughs> pimp when I, when I can be. <laughs> uh thanks everybody for listening we'll be back again next week on dig me out visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our facebook page and twitter feed